going on, everyone? You're listening to Race to the Finish. My name is Carlos, and I'm the host of the show, but things are going to be a little different for this episode. If you're a longtime listener, you're probably used to the more traditional interview style stuff, where it's just literally just one big, giant, candid conversation. But it's not going to be like that this time. These times have called on us to fight for the liberation of black lives. We're living in the days of the largest civil rights movement in history, where people all over the world are finally acknowledging the violence perpetuated by the police towards the black community. The purpose of this episode is to gather black creatives, activists, musicians, and community organizers to speak anything that may be on their mind, whether it be of struggle, prosperity, or anything they feel is necessary to share with the world during these times. So thanks to everyone who submitted a piece for this episode. Each and every one of you are amazing and super, super, super appreciated. I mean that. Thank you so much. And to listeners, I hope that you will enjoy what all of my friends have to share with you all. So let's go ahead and get this started. To kick things off, I want to introduce you all to a friend of mine who is an author, a speaker, a life coach, and a poet. He's a very influential person here in Cleveland, and I couldn't have been more honored to have him on this show. So I would like to introduce you all to Chris Marvell, and this is his piece titled Dear Black Man. Dear Black Man, this isn't your first time hurt. Your journey to America started with bruised wrists from shackles, a bruised chest from kicks, a bruised heart for everything you miss. Home. For 400 years, you have made the efforts to rise, stand tall, and be the man you were created to be. But to be that man in a country with other plans for your value because of your hue meant you had to endure the posture of insecurity held by the oppressors. Men and women who should know better because they believe in God. In 2020, we reflect yet again George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Sean Reed, Breonna Taylor, and many more of our neighbors have been captured to death. Dear black man, I can't tell you it will get better, but no matter what they throw at us, we survive through any weather. The climate has never changed for us. We've always been hot due to unusually cold-blooded situations. They just starting to see the damage they can do when the heat begins to burn them too. Dear black man, yes we can rise above reproach yet again, but this time we have to do it with a pen. We need legislation for all the hell police been raising. We need resources for the families police keep divorcing. We are grandfathers, husbands, Fathers, sons, friends, work associates, students, ex-felons, lawyers, doctors, athletes, and anyone else you would meet of any other race. Everyone is not a racist, but face it, your silence contributes to the violence because not speaking up to those you love can potentially birth someone who hates. We demand the respect we deserve because 400 years of you kneeling on our last nerve is going to cause a protest you can't digest. Sincerely yours, a black man. For the next submission, I want to offer you a piece by my friend, 
um, that I've known for a very long time, you know, way back since I was like 18. That's not like that long ago, but like, that's kind of long. But we went to college together. Uh, used to call her Miss Tyra, but she goes by Tyra West. She hosts her own podcast called High Notes. And she submitted something um, that I think it's important for all of us to listen to. So here we go. Everyone, this is Tyra West. I've always said I am black before I am a woman. I don't say this just because of the pride I have in my identity, but because I know that in this world, I am first viewed for the color of my skin. Being black isn't a trend. It isn't an aesthetic. It isn't a brand. Being black is an identity, a culture, a multitude of generational pain, abuse, and yet still unity. So when I say black lives matter, what I mean is black people were born kings and queens and no one should be able to strip that away. I fight because I know what it's like to walk down the street and be called a nigger. I know what it's like for people to bump into me without even thinking to excuse themselves because of a superiority complex. I know what it's like to have a parent wrongfully incarcerated, to have to work twice as hard just to receive half the acknowledgement, to be targeted by the police. These are things that I live with daily and for so long have skated by convincing myself this is just how life goes, but no more. No longer am I accepting the labels minority or oppressed. We are reclaiming what it means to be black. We cannot continue to erase the injustices black people have faced in this country for longer than probably even documented. We cannot continue to pretend there isn't a systemic racism and biases that exist right within the foundation. Before we can ever pretend that making brown band-aids and removing security locks off of black hair care products is a real solution, we first have to evaluate the system that convinced us as a country that black lives truly don't matter. So until the day my identity is overtly multifaceted, I have to continue to speak up for the part of my identity that is constantly and disproportionately mutilated and obliterated. But until then, I am black first, and then I am a woman. Next up, if you've been listening to Race to the Finish, I'm saying for like the last, I think almost three years now, you might recognize this voice. They were on both iterations of the show, uh, and they were featured on two of the episodes, one on like the first, and then second on the reboot. Manny is somebody that I've known for a while, and I'm just uber thankful of them for even just showing up on the show and constantly contributing. They take on a lot of different talents, and they definitely are uh, an artist in their own right. So may I present to you Free by Manny. Free is a song I wrote meant to be an empowerment anthem that discusses the impact of mental health in a Black community, specifically for my Black trans individuals out there. When I was growing up, I was bullied for a variety of things, being poor, not having the best clothes, being overtly feminine, etc. And all of that stuff has contributed to low self-esteem, thoughts of self-harm, not wanting to look myself in the mirror and be okay with who I was because I was always told that I wasn't enough. And growing up and growing into the confidence that I have now, 
I can holistically say that I am who I am because I didn't allow society to dictate who I should be. And I know it's so much easier said than done. And I know that there are a lot of factors that contribute to this. Factors such as the black community not fully accepting the queer community inside of it, not fully understanding that black queer people are the reason that a lot of the rights that we have today as black people stemmed from black queer activism. A lot of black people don't understand that the innate fear they have internalized of trans people, of gay people, lesbians that live within the black spectrum don't receive the full benefit of the doubt because of the extra identity of being queer. It's not fair to us that we have to sit in the shadows while cisgender Black people kind of get off with a slap on the wrist. For example, right now, there are a lot of Black people, Black cisgender people sharing posts and solidarity with each other saying I am a black man I am a black woman but what about your black non-binary people your black not gender non-conforming people your black trans people that can't post that because they I didn't don't identify as a man or a woman what about them it's as if subconsciously we're left behind because we don't matter enough to the black community and that's not fair and so this is a attempt for me to get past that and to be okay with the fact that like, I may not matter to you, but I sure as hell matter to myself. And I know that I can find the help that I need. And that is what free is about. Free is about accepting what it is and being able to move on because I have the strength and the ability to be free. I'm a wicked, no doubt about it I'm misunderstood, so I took a vow of silence No one could hear the pain in my voice Not a hand to hold to fill this void What is fear when you're afraid of everything? Losing your friends, maybe even your sanity I can't breathe, it's hard to think My mind's made up, no time for sympathy, empathy no friends allowed, my mind is really crowded with thoughts of depression, man, I don't know who allowed it, this shit is exhausting, it's clear I'm just surviving, I wanna make it out alive, so I keep thriving. Some may say it's hard to take the pain away, today all you have to say I am me. I am free to be, to be. Nothing can change my mind. I am me, and I am free to be, to be. Nothing can change my mind. What is fear when you're afraid of everything? Losing your friends. Maybe even your sanity I can't breathe It's hard to think My mind's made up No time for sympathy I am me I am me And I am free to be To be Nothing can change my mind I am me I am me 
nothing can change my mind. I am me, I am me, and I am free to be to me. Nothing can change my mind. Next up, we have a contributor that started a pretty amazing initiative called Writers in Residence, where they teach creative writing to youth who are incarcerated in jails and prisons. Zachary Thomas is the one that started this initiative, and he decided to submit a poem for this specific episode. So I hope you will enjoy. Hi, my name is Zachary Thomas, and I'm going to be reading a poem that I wrote called Salier's Bedtime. It's an ephrastic piece that responds to Charles L. Salier's painting in the Cleveland Museum of Art, which is one of my favorites, titled Bedtime. I work where I live. Despite them saying, remember, don't bring your home with you, mommy. I don't have a choice, especially when I am mommy to sons, to daughters, to all men. I take care of them. I do this thing right before bed, a routine, some say. A ritual, I say. I soak in the tub right up until my skin raisins, softens, mixes with water. Then I scrub. The visible and invisible, the grimy guilt of giving myself up, the ancestral keloid scars on black bodies, backs crying rows of plowed flesh, blood and bone whipped, for better business and even more pleasure that look more like tree bark and feel more like braille. Then I rinse, drain, and try to sleep. Fan on, tucked in naked, head wrapped in scarlet, but can't. Either way, I see their faces drip sweat and moan on top of me. I can't close my eyes or leave them open. I want to take the opportunity to bring back somebody that was on the show before. Chance is somebody that has been organizing and representing the Palestinian community. I know personally that it's something that he takes very seriously. Please join me in listening to Chance as he tells us more about his experience. Hi, my name is Chance and I'm a Palestinian activist based out of Cleveland, Ohio. If we're talking about Palestine, the one of the most important things to talk about is what Zionism is. Zionism was a colonial ideology that came out of the 19th century, which was founded by Theodore Herzl. It was to establish a homeland for Jewish people. So at the outset, the discussions were centered around Uganda, uh, Argentina, and Palestine. So Palestine was chosen because of its historical connections to all three of the Abrahamic religions, Islam, Christianity, Judaism. So because of this connection, Palestine was chosen uh, as the best way to sell Jews returning to their uh, homeland. But the way that the, the founders of Zionism, which is not related to Judaism whatsoever, because Zionism in itself is a political ideology, but 
Judaism is a religion. Um, so the way that Zionism was phrased was uh, this colonial mentality that came from Europe um, at the tail end of colonialism. Um, and so when they were forming this place for a people without a land, they chose Palestine because in their ideology, they could ignore the Palestinians that were living there and establish this Jewish homeland. So in itself, um, the idea of establishing a homeland for a certain demographic of people over the indigenous people that are living there um, brings up this mentality of uh, white colonialism, white nationalism that needs to exist um, for Zionism to exist. Um, and that comes with the subjugation of Palestinians. So if we're going to flash forward to the results of Zionism, it has to be um, the most notable event in Palestinian history was between 1947 to 1949 with the Nakba, um, which means in Arabic, the catastrophe. And the reason it's referred to as the catastrophe is because 700,000 Palestinians were forced out of their villages. Over 500 villages were destroyed um, to create what is now considered Israel. Um, so in that, we see this mass migration of people, um, this mass expulsion of people um, to pave the way for a new state predicated on Zionism. This has contributed to the largest refugee population within the world where Palestinians numbering somewhere between, on official documents, 5 million refugees all the way up to unofficially 7 million. And they're largely concentrated in the surrounding Arab countries and refugee camps, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and then also in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Um, and that is that displacement is where uh, the Palestinian issue or the Palestinian struggle for liberation arises from. Um, obviously, there was displacement before 1948. But this was the big moment um, that kind of called the need for Palestinian resistance um, and Palestinian liberation, even though there was earlier calls um, to implement that. So on this path to Palestinian liberation, we've always believed in joint struggle, um, the idea that you need to form relations with other oppressed people to achieve worldwide liberation. This is why early Palestinian revolutionaries, the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, forged connections with places like Algeria, the Soviet Union, Vietnam, um, and as well as like the Black Panthers and Black uh, prominent black leaders that were based in the United States. And also the PLO and Palestine at the time were very close with Nelson Mandela to the point where Nelson Mandela said, 
Um, our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. Um, so just going back to th this joint struggle mentality, we see the need um, to make these historical connections um, because Palestinians and black people have been fighting against a framework that has sought to oppress all of us. And that has been interconnected um, between the United States and Israel. And what I mean by that is the United States gives Israel $3.8 billion a year to enforce um, occupation, oppression on Palestinians. But the thing that Israel does, and there's actually a, a campaign to end this, is called the deadly exchange. And this involves police officers from the United States going over to Israel, receiving military training on um, following the Israeli Defense Forces or the Israeli Occupation Forces, as Palestinians call them, um, riding along with them, seeing how tear gas, dispersal tactics, um, and other types of practices work, and then they bring those back and have law enforcement uh, learn from those tactics. And this is very important because if you're from Cleveland, uh, Cleveland actually has done trainings with the Israeli uh, occupation forces. So these policies and these practices are being implemented directly back onto our community within Cleveland. And it's so extreme that um, New York actually has a branch and a department within Israel. And you can look that up as well. Um, so when we talk about things like surveillance, things like deadly force, these are things that um, are part of the same oppressive system. And if we're going to move forward in joint liberation, we need to rally around and try to end all of these practices, not just practices based in one place. And the reason that um, Palestinians and black revolutionaries from the 60s and 70s were able to forge, forge these connections with each other was because they had this similar mentality of uh, uniting against this oppressive front to the point where black Panthers who were stationed and exiled to Algeria were talking with Palestinian revolutionaries at the time. Um, and these revolutionaries um, sought to meet with the Black Panthers because we all realized that we were a part of the same oppressive system. And this was even to the point where the CIA thought Palestinians were training the Black Panthers. And the Black Panthers themselves saw themselves more like the Palestinians in this kind of third world fight, um, like reclaiming their native land or fighting against this like big military occupation versus the, um, the Vietnamese who were also fighting back against the U.S. at the time. So there's this big connection of black Palestinian solidarity um, in joint struggle. And this was further uh, evidence and exacerbated 
when we saw Israel's connection to South Africa. Um, they routinely funded the apartheid regime that was there, and they understood that because they were in a similar system of isolating people to Bantu stands, um, creating this apartheid system, making second-class citizens, that if apartheid South Africa fell, that was the closest state to them. And Rhodesia had already fell, which Theodore Herzl, the founder of Zionism, was pitching the idea of Zionism to. If they had already fallen and then South Africa had fallen, then Israel as a settler colonial state, which means they're bringing a foreign native, a foreign population to replace a native population. So their, their role as a settler colonial state would be very short after that. And obviously things don't play out um, the same way, but those connections were made and it just further encourages us to move on that joint struggle uh, lens. So at this point, like during Ferguson, you see like a lot of people saying that, um, trying to evidence that deadly exchange campaign and understand that so that same tear gas that was, that was fired in Ferguson was also fired in Israel because it was manufactured in Pennsylvania in the United States. So noticing those connections and then mobilizing on them on why we need to end those connections because they're, they serve to disenfranchise and oppress all of us as uh, people of color and as a global front against oppression is so important. So this is why I think that we need to move forward in not just solidarity and stand in solidarity with each other, but we need to move forward in joint struggle, understanding the larger frameworks of why we're oppressed and not just noticing that like, hey, like this is going on, but how do we move forward to end those oppressive systems? Because I feel like in itself, solidarity has its limitations of only like, I notice the struggle, but like, we need to capitalize on that and end that. So when Israel is training ICE or when they're training the law enforcement here, like these systems are all intertwined. The same way that the apartheid wall in Palestine is being made by the same company that made the me Mexican border wall that Trump wants, like we need to understand that how can we mobilize against that? How can we end all these practices? Our limitation can't just be solidarity, but it's got to be through action and joint struggle because joint struggle is the only way that we're going to survive in this, so, like, in this intensely oppressive system and move forward. I want to bring it back to something more musical. Joel is somebody that I've known for a while. I feel like most people on this episode I've known for a minute, but I'm really thankful for them. Joel and I used to work together, and he's one of the most musically talented people that I think that any of you could ever meet. Please welcome Jay Scott singing I Can't Breathe. Hello, my name is Joel Furr. I go by Jay Scott. I live here in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm a singer-songwriter, 28 years of age, and I am black. The song you're getting ready to hear is a song that I wrote out of raw emotion surrounding the death of George Floyd. I'm sure you know the details. 
the song encompasses the very words of George Floyd. And sadly, it also encompasses the words of Eric Garner. This is If I Can't Breathe. What's the fate of a man like me? Now the white man's gun was a poverty. What's the fate if I dare to dream? Can't run, can't jog, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. So what's my fate? If I can't breathe, if I can't breathe, if I can't breathe, if I can't breathe, what's the fate of a man like me? Is it in my home? Is it while I sleep? What's the fate of a man like me? Is it in my car? Is it on the street? What's my fate? What's my fate? If I can't breathe If I can't breathe If I can't breathe If I can't I can't breathe, God please, 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 lift your knee, God please, I can't breathe, God please, lift your knee, God please, I can't breathe. I want to bring on somebody new to the show that has never been on before, but honestly, after listening to this, yo, you got to get on an episode. She is a very talented individual, and she wrote something extremely special. This is a poem titled, See Me, I'm Black, by Ash Rhoda. Growing up, my friends took comfort in my white mother. While my skin tone gave them pause, My mother's white complexion was an inviting hue, letting them know that my house was safe. Her blood and my somehow nullified black mistakes. She was the reason I was allowed to partake in your sleepovers and friendships, yet you still think you're incapable of hate. Even though you don't see me, I'm black. Code switching was ingrained so early, I don't even know what my true voice is. 
My heart feels caressed by the smooth rhythms of eubonics, but my white family gets nervous when I speak too black. I code switch so much, even my inner voice is cracked. My thoughts don't know how they want to flow, so they're jumbled, no map. You don't even recognize my voice when I'm not mimicking yours. Hear me, I'm black. Tender swipes in dating are its own minefield. White men looking to experiment their fetishes with what they deem is safe. No wifey status intended, just come through to my place. No black girls allowed, but you're mixed, it's okay. As if it's a compliment to disrespect half my race. What are you, where are you from, are the first questions from your mouth. You see my brown skin, yet you need to clear your doubts. Your mother wouldn't accept a black daughter-in-law in her house, but you hope my mixed race means that it's allowed. You want to feel me and love me, then accept that I'm black. Cuídate con la negra, and I reply perdón. You'll have the shame to look embarrassed, but it's really my Spanish tone, because while we like to think that all people of color are created equal, there's a hierarchy among minorities, and you're most loyal to your people. But my Spanish doesn't make me less black, but it's theater like a stage prop. Our herencia only varies depending on where the boat stopped. Sugarcane, cocoa beans, cotton, tobacco. A plantation is a plantation is a plantation. Dilo, I'm black. Your silence is maddening because you don't think it's your fight. You claim to love me, but you won't stand up for what's right. Because you see them as them and me as me. But what you don't realize is that I also can't breathe. I'm screaming so hard and I'm begging to be seen. But you don't see me. I'm black. Next up is somebody that has helped me out through quite a bit of stuff. Like, especially through school. And is somebody that, I mean, even to this day, kind of mentors me and, and, and has, like, very, very engaging conversations. It was so interesting having the opportunity to listen to her. Tatiana is going to talk to us about a couple topics that are close to her heart. So please help me welcome Tatiana Atkinson. My name is Tatiana. I use she, her pronouns. I am a black woman. And I think that's a great way to introduce myself alone because like, that's who I am and that's how I exist in every space that I go into. And that's um, how I present myself. And um, black women are the base of everything, of life itself, of the universe of um, life as we know it because we were the first people but they're also the base of work and consistency and follow through and all the things that are important like we're held for strength and that's overwhelming sometimes that it's all on our back but it's because we are strong and we are um, we're just dope people so um, when I go into things I go into them with the framework of a black woman and um the framework of a black woman who wants to see us move forward. So one thing that I've been thinking a lot lately about in my life is um, about Afrofuturism. And what Afrofuturism looks like to me is it means a future that is based in the success and, um, and just the joy thriving black lives um and that means all black lives so black women's lives black trans lives um 
black lives of people with varying abilities and varying ages. But uh, when I look at the framework of how I make decisions for what I'm going to do and what I go into it, I look at in the future, is this going to support and uplift black people? Is it an Afrofuturistic frame? And is it an Afrofuturistic space? And do I want to move forward in that? So um, I am a community organizer in a lot of spaces. And for a while, I stopped organizing. And I've done um, work on a lot of campaigns around black folks, around students, around bus riders, around um, voting, around educating people politically about their local politics. And I've gone into a lot of spaces where I felt like as a black woman, I was being used as a mule and I was being used as a workhorse. And um, also I was not being given to, like people were taking everything out of me and they weren't giving into me and that wasn't sustainable and that wasn't strategic for the future. So I think it's really important in movement spaces and like moving forward as black people that we reframe what we're doing and we reframe what we're looking at for how is it going to sustain the most marginalized of us how is it going to sustain and uplift and push black women and keep us from being in those spaces and um, keep us from being erased from those spaces as well because not only do we do all the work we then don't get recognized for the work that we're doing and everything shouldn't be for recognition i definitely am here for like being humble but like also you're not gonna take my shit and ride my coattails and take my flowers for me so like being radically inclusive is something that i'm also looking at in the spaces that i'm existing in um how do they treat the people who are different how do they treat the people who are less than how do they treat to um be very honest the hood niggas like as we go through organizing i think that a lot of people in this movement for black lives we are elitist and we tell people what we want for black people and what we want to do and what we want to move forward with but we don't talk about the people who are most affected by the state and we don't even ask them what we need because we want to gatekeep and we want to keep them out of this space because they're problematic for this and they're problematic for that but we have to radicalize and like, you know, really inform people and move them into that space. And if they don't want to be radicalized and if they don't want to move forward, then we don't move forward with them. But to me, Afrofuturism includes the least of us and the most of us and the people that nobody else wants to talk to because they might not use big words, but they're just as smart. They might not have ever been on a college campus because they didn't have access to opportunities that the rest of everybody had, but they're not less than anybody else. If anything, they're more than and they're more down for this movement because they are directly affected because the police are raiding their homes on a regular basis. They're killing their children. They're killing their um, sisters, their mothers, their brothers, their fathers, things like that. Um, so radical inclusivity is something that's been really on my mind lately i feel like i'm rambling but y'all gonna ramble with me here and that's what it is um so another theme that i've been looking into a lot besides um radical inclusivity and afrofuturism is working in a framework that is intentionally healing because we we are not a broken people but we have been subjected to a lot of pain and a lot of trauma, and we've got to collectively heal and move through that. And I think constantly reliving that pain and yelling and being angry, it's understandable. But at some point, we have to frame, well, what does it look like to be joyous 
and what does it look like to live and breathe and eat that joy what is it to be free when are we free what is liberation and how do i feel liberated right now in reality and how do i feel liberated with what i'm fighting for and what i'm moving forward to so um just like frameworks that work on taking hurt and turning them not like in like a really toxic positivity way because like toxic positivity you know is like when you're like man i'm feeling kind of down and somebody's like oh well look at the brighter side you woke up this morning and you breathed and you're having a good day like i'm not saying that but at the same time we can't always live in the pain because we want to have joy we want to be free we want to be amazing and we want to live an amazing and abundant life and we can't move into that abundance until we address that pain and we also address how we're going to move forward and through it um because you can't go around pain you have to go through pain and come out on the other side and on that other side man does the future look bright right so we just got to get through it so i think that as I think about my life as a black woman, as I show up as a black woman, I am consistently in every statement that I make and everything that I do. I'm making sure that I'm communicating in a way that is Afrofuturistic. I am making people be seen and heard and appreciated in a way that is radically inclusive, inclusive of everybody and all things that are here for me and are fighting not just for me, like for us, but are fighting towards the same goals that I'm fighting towards. Um, and on top of that, I'm making sure that I'm consistently giving myself space for to heal and giving those around me spaces to heal in ways that are ancestral to me and that are deep. So in ways that are like inviting my ancestors into my space to give me clarity, to give me peace in ways that are sitting and being with even just my family members and my loved ones and understanding those black cultural traditions of eating and talking shit over the table and dancing and having a good time and all of those things are just as radical as being out here in the street and screaming and i also think that like radicalizing joy is so important so knowing that i am going through this framework of being afrofuturistic of being radically inclusive but on top of that i am being joyful in opposition to anything that is against me and I'm showing that joy as a way to be radical as well you can't take my smile you can't take my dancing you can't take my joy and I'm going to be unapologetic about it I'm not going to code switch for you I'm not going to be quiet for you I'm not going to switch up my persona for you I'm going to be here and I'm going to be here in these three ways that are framing my goals in life and how um, I communicate and I'm going to be happy about it and you're going to deal with it. And that's just where we're at. And I hope that all black women and black people move forward thinking about like what brings them joy and how we're thinking about the future and how we're thinking about who we are when we're free and we're liberated. And when we make our movements today, we're thinking intentionally and manifesting that future as we go forward. Like we still got to deal with some fuck shit and we still have to strategically deal with that fuck shit. But as we strategically deal with this fuck shit, we know that we're going to get to the future that we want to get and we have to be visualizing that future consistently or else we're going to lose sight of it. 
R.D. Johnson is a very talented poet and extremely passionate about his craft. He decided to submit a poem titled Video Games and Movies. It's an honor to introduce you all to R.D. Johnson. It's like we're living in a video game. The things I've read, seen, and witnessed in a week could have all been scripted for the next Grand Theft Auto. Senseless acts of violence over and over again. Senseless killings over and over again. As if people are inept to the five senses. They see nothing wrong with what they're doing. They don't hear the cries of the victims. They feel no remorse for their actions, as if the devil has overtaken them, ravenously seeking out pain and torment that they can taste. And they don't have any words because their actions speak loudly for themselves. The state of my mind wants to volley back and forth, but I'm not letting it win. My mind is saying, drink. Well, I'm not trying to be buzzed for light years, as we living out a toy story of how a system wants to be our Andy, and we should join in and sing, you got a friend in me. Nah, I'm not doing that. I'm not Woody. We've been buzzed for light years thinking that things will get better with time. Yeah, to infinity and beyond, right? I watched the same movie. We tired of waiting. We want the change now, and we gonna be the change. Up next is a new friend that I made. And we actually met in Cincinnati at a conference that they held. Giselle is somebody that is so bubbly and has good vibes. She's going to be talking to us about being black and volleyball. Hey, uh, I'm Giselle Coleman Martinez. I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. I just graduated from UC, University of Cincinnati, just this past, uh, just this past April, May. Um, everything's a blur. Um, and I'll be moving to D.C. for a graduate program in global urban development in urban development in Latin America. I'll be going to American University, so I'm super excited. And yeah, so <clears throat> I guess a cool little story that I could share. Um, it's 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 a long winded one, but I think you'll enjoy it um, since I so I guess since I was pretty little, I've always had this impression that I'm the only black or black passing Latina in the whole entirety of Cincinnati, which I came to find out isn't entirely true, but also not entirely false. Um, they just don't really reside in the metro part of the city because I mean, like my own family, they're mostly either like my Puerto Rican family, they're mostly white passing um, for the most part. And then my other, the the rest of my immediate family that's down here, I mean, they look Latina, but they're not black. And then my dad, I mean, my dad's black, so my dad's my black family. So um, I didn't really understand my full identity as a Latina until my mom really explained to me what it meant to be a Puerto Rican when I was like four or five years old. None of that really made sense at the time, so I ran with this new knowledge that I had acquired and started realizing why I speak Spanish and other kids don't, why I eat certain foods and other kids don't, why I'm not entirely black, but I'm also not entirely Latina. Um, at the age of four, I didn't really realize how difficult that was going to be trying to explain that to other kids that were around my age, so I just kind of got excited to tell people and talk about who I am and stuff like that and explain, you know, all this stuff. So as the years go by, I do my best in explaining my identity to people. Um, I should point out, when I was little, I from first grade to uh, sixth grade until I transferred to Walnut, to my high school, my public high school, I went to a Catholic school here in Cincinnati um, called St. Bart's. It's not St. Bart's anymore, but I used to go to a Catholic school. Um, 
So I did my best in explaining my identity to people, mostly with, you know, how to pronounce my name or if they met my mom. My mom's name is Lisette. Like, and so I have a lot of family members who have just I mean, they're not odd names, but they're odd to some people. Um, so I would like explain their names, explain my name, uh, say how to pronounce it and explaining why I speak Spanish to um, some of my family members and um, none of that seemed to really appease the white kids I went to school with because I mean all I saw on the surface level was a black kid which I mean it's not wrong it's not entirely wrong but I mean it's also not all who I am so it, it, there were times that I wish I could just explain that a little bit better and um, so I went to a small like I said I went to a small Catholic school here in Cincinnati until like sixth grade and it wasn't super diverse you know you got white walls you got your white floors and even whiter people who haven't the slightest idea about any heritage besides, you know, German European that they're familiar with. I mean, it's not their fault. They weren't, they just weren't exposed to it, but it absolutely did make me feel like I was isolated because there weren't any other students that looked like me. And, and I seriously mean that, like there was none, like, I think there was maybe one girl that ended up going there after I left the school. Um, and I, I doubt that there were any other, because I feel like I would have seen them. It's, it's, pretty easy to spot a black kid in a white crowd. So, um, so all of this, I, while I was in this Catholic school, I started playing volleyball when I was in third grade. Um, I loved it. I didn't really consider how different I was in the world of volleyball until I like started playing club and playing in high school. But, um, you know, like as I was playing volleyball, I, all I really cared about was I get to play with my friends. I get to learn a bit about volleyball. I get to, you know, hang out with my friends after school and like hang out with them on the weekends because like you got games and all that. So I didn't really think anything about it. Um, but if you're familiar with the volleyball world, what you would stereotypically see is, you know, skinny, white, tall girls on a team of clones of all of them. They're all the same. And that's not entirely not true. <laughs> it's not entirely false. I mean, my first experience with having a black teammate was like in the eighth grade and it was with my friend Janice and she was I mean we're so cool and like she was the first black person I had ever played volleyball with which to me was a big deal because I didn't really I mean it took me five years to realize that there were a large group of that there wasn't really a large representation of black volleyball players in Cincinnati for that matter I mean at least in the Cincinnati area that I was aware of, at least. I mean, because I had gone to Catholic school, I was in a different circle than most black people would have been involved in. So it was it was like shocking to me that I I didn't discover that I was we are a minority in the vol not just like a minority, but we are a minority in the volleyball community, even like at the age of like thirteen. So it was just it was crazy. I don't know. It took that it took so long for me to realize that. Um, and I also know that that's not like a huge revelation because now that there's like, there's like an abundance of black volleyball players and volleyball players of color that are either like semi-pro, pro or in college and things like that. But I had been surrounded for the majority of my volleyball career by white girls who were all, not only obviously not black, but were also skinnier than me, had different hair than me, didn't have to wear con because I've worn glasses since I was six. So I can't see anything. And didn't wear, you know, didn't have to wear contacts, like didn't have to adjust all these things. And just overall, like, just were not like me. And we, I don't know, we, I mean, we were on these volleyball teams together and we played and we had spent so much time and it just didn't really occur to me that it was an issue until I got to high school until, or not, to, yeah, until like I got to eighth grade. So it was, um, yeah, 
it was a little shocking, but I'm giving all this backstory information for a reason, promise. <laughs> so to fast forward a little bit into my volleyball career, I met about like, oh, by the time I was like 17, I'd probably met like 10 volleyball players until I was like, yeah, maybe about 10. Um, by this time, I'd played in like a bunch of tournaments with a lot of teams. Like I had been on different teams ever since I left Catholic school and had just begun. By the time I was 17, I had just started playing club volleyball. I was 16 or 17. Um, if you're unfamiliar also with club volleyball, it's basically just volleyball in the winter instead of the fall. A little more intense, got practices for a little bit longer. You get a little bit more private coaching, like stuff like that. In your weekends for the next four or five months consist entirely of traveling throughout the Midwest to play volleyball nonstop for hours between Thursday and Sunday. Honestly, it's a little overrated, but, you know, it gives volleyball volleyball players a chance to really amp up their skills. So when I was 17, I played on a couple other uh, different teams with more and more black people. And I was slowly starting to become a norm that there were black people playing volleyball. And I thought that was awesome. And I was, you know, starting to meet all these other talented black volleyball players. I was finally on a team with like four black players and like we made up half and half, of like half black and half white. And it was fantastic. And I was starting to learn that it was growing. And I mean, as I got older, clearly, like it's it's going to grow as a population. But I mean, when I was little, I didn't realize it was an issue. I was just I was just playing volleyball, just play volleyball. I mean, I clearly knew that I was a, the black kid at school, but, <laughs> you know, it was just easier to kind of come to terms with that when um, I'm finally getting that experience to play more and more volleyball because it was a sport that I loved. I mean, it was my life. Um, so I'm 17 now in the store, I'm 17. And one day in high school, my friend Meredith, uh, she tells me about this college showcase tournament in Kentucky. Um, I hadn't really thought about playing in college because if I'm being honest, like I really wasn't that good. <laughs> and on top of that, you didn't see, you also didn't see like that many black players in D1 volleyball, let alone volleyball players with, you know, big ass thighs that I got. And like, I got like a huge ass and like, I got this th- crazy hair. Like I, you know, it's not crazy, but it's curly and it's not, I'm not a tall, skinny, white, blonde girl, you know? So it just, it wasn't common to see girls that look like me. So overall, the issue was, it was an image thing. It was like, eh, I don't really look like a D1 volleyball player, so I probably shouldn't, like, you know, like, what's the point? That was my mindset back then. In hindsight, who gives a fuck? Like, I should have I should have just gone for it, whether it be if I really wanted it. But, um, I mean, my interest wasn't really there, so I just kind of went just because, eh, I'll go with my friends. It's an opportunity to play more volleyball, opportunity to practice. And it was free, so I thought I should go. Um, So, well, we went to the showcase. And as all the girls are, you know, when you get to the showcase, like, this is common amongst, like, college showcases. You get to the showcase, you get a a T-shirt that says, like, the name of the title. It was, like, the, I don't know, it was, like, the Northern Kentucky Talent Showcase or something like that for volleyball players. Um, You get your T-shirts and um, you get like a number taped onto your back and you know you got you get you get you warmed up your knee pads and all that um and then I as I'm like getting ready with my friends I hear in the corner I turn and I hear this girl speaking Spanish and I was floored I turned to my friend Meredith and I was like Meredith did you hear that and Meredith <laughs> I remember I got so excited and like my friends Meredith and Molly that I went with they were all so excited for me but <laughs> they were looking at me like 
what are you so excited about? And so I um, I was like telling them, I was like, guys, guys, there's, there's a volleyball player over there. She's speaking Spanish. Guys, guys, go. And um, they were like, oh, yeah, great, cool. Uh, and so um, they knew that I was also excited, but I was like, yeah, this is cool. So I devised a plan. I figured out that we were in different skill sets, skill groups, um, because when you're in these talent showcases, you're like split up by like what what your skills are. If you're like a back row player, a hitter, if you're um, if you're a middle, if you're taller, like if you're a libero, like they split you up by position. And so then they put you into like the circle of events by showing off basically what your skills are. Um, so I tried to figure out a plan to talk to her. And then based on our skill groups, we weren't in the same circles for the coaches to check out. Oh, well. So as the hours going on, I finally find a chance to talk to her. We were warming up to serve, and I was right behind her in line getting ready for jump serves. Um, I was like, this, this is it. I'm, I'm going to make it. I'm going to have a friend. Oh, a key part of this story. She was also black. She was black. She had curly hair like me. She was a little bit, she was a little bit lighter than me, but you know what? I didn't care. She was black. She had hair just like mine. Her, hair, her mother was dark-skinned with her. Her grandmother was with her, and they were all speaking Spanish. This was a moment. Like I was very excited. I was like, "There's literally of all places that I didn't even want to. I didn't even want to go to this talent showcase." And I finally found a black Latina girl who kind of looks like me and is playing volleyball. That's this is huge for me. This is you know like we're in the Midwest. Who finds that? So I had gotten so excited. So I was in line. I was thinking of a plan. I was like, "All right, I'm gonna talk to her. I'm gonna I'm gonna be friends with her." So. It's our turn to serve, and right before she serves, like, we stepped to the side a little bit, and I, I, I don't know what happened. We were just, like, kind of chilling, like, waiting for, I think we were, like, waiting to get a ball, and um, I tap her on the shoulder, I, like, nudge her, and I said this in Spanish. I said, hace mucho calor aquí con, con todas las chicas jugando tan cerca, which in English means it's really hot in here with all these girls playing around us so close together. Mind you, this gym was really small. There was like 200 people in it. It was very hot. <laughs> so I figured like, yeah, yeah, she, she has to agree with me. Conversation made. Like, this is the conversation. <laughs> and I was, <laughs> you know what she did to me? <laughs> she looked, she turned to me, she started laughing, and then she ran away. <laughs> oh, I had never been so embarrassed in my life. I looked around to see if anybody else just saw what just happened. <laughs> and nobody did so I was like thank god but I had to like sit and reevaluate myself for a minute because I was like what about that was incorrect like I was like did I say something wrong I was like because I mean I grew up speaking Spanish so like I mean it wasn't entirely everyone was like oh what did I say like all I said is it's really hot in here like you know and so then I like tried to find her again and like and and now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, you know, she probably just didn't hear you. But I I don't know. I was all pretty close to her, man. Like, you know, like I tapped her, you know, close enough to nudge her. And so I was like, what did I do wrong? And <laughs> I went I went and I told I finally I found Meredith. Uh, it was like I said, we were in two different talent groups. So I went and I went to go find my friend Meredith. And I was like, Meredith, she hates me. <laughs> She's never going to talk to me ever. <laughs> and. Meredith was like, just hell, she probably just didn't hear you, <laughs> which I think she just didn't hear me. But at the same time, you got to understand how excited I was. You know, I was in this sport that I had loved for so long and for such a large part of my life that I was finally, slowly but surely getting this 
acceptance onto it, like, within the community of volleyball, that I was finally meeting people that I really liked, or not that I really liked, I liked everybody, but people that really looked like me and people that were like me. And so it was finally so cool to, like, get that one sense of identity fulfilled. And she just ran away because <laughs> she just, it's probably just because she didn't hear me. And so as the day went on, like, I would, like, try to be in circles with her. And, like, I was, it's honestly a little creepy now. And maybe it wasn't creepy. I was just really just trying to be her friend. So I would try to be in, like, the same, um, like, rotation circles as her. I was, like, behind her in line. Like, you know, I was just trying to be friendly. So then we were coming to the end of the showcase. Didn't really, didn't get to talk to her felt embarrassed that I probably just fucked up my Spanish like I probably just got too excited and I probably said something dumb and like you know I mean it was like four years four or five years ago so I really don't remember what I really said but I said something like that and so I'm thinking like you know maybe it just wasn't meant to be but it is cool overall that I find out that there are volleyball players that are like me that she looks like me she talks like me I mean, she's not like me, but, you know, we have that representation. And I thought that that was really cool. So at the end of the showcase, we get to the end of the showcase, we're packing up, we're getting all our stuff ready, and I'm getting ready to walk to my friend, my friend Molly, her dad drove us, and we're getting ready to drive, get into her dad's car. And I find the girl again, and I was like, all right, this is your second chance, don't, don't fuck this up. So <laughs> she goes and she sits in the car. Um, she has Kentucky plates, so I'm assuming she's from Kentucky, and I was like, oh, we weren't gonna be friends anyway, you live in Kentucky, and, um, I look at her, and I wave, and I say goodbye, um, and she waves back at me, and it was cool, it was nice, and then her, I walked over to her mom, um, oh, what did I say to her mom? I said something, I said something like, um, fue un buen día, verdad, or, like, I said something, because our cars were, like, near each other, so I was like, it was a good day today. Like, I, in English, that means it was a great day today, right? She said, yeah, it was. It was a really good day. I hope you had, or she said, like, good luck, or, like, I hope you, I hope you get scouted or something like that. And I was like, you know, I hope I do too. <laughs> and um, that, like, small little interaction, even with her mom, like, made me so satisfied. And, um, you know, even though I felt like I really embarrassed myself, I really finally had felt like I was finally getting more accepted into the volleyball community and seeing more people like me and I thought it was a really cool experience and even though I didn't get scouted (laughs) nor did I get any offers to play on any volleyball team I still got to meet even see that we're growing and our representation is growing um and I mean, I don't play volleyball now anymore, not as much, not nearly as much as I did in high school. I mean, volleyball was my life. And once I got to college, I mean, not only did I not really, I didn't really want to play on the club anymore. I didn't want to play IM that much. Like now I just kind of socially play with my friends and, um, you know, I still have that passion and that idea of working on a team and playing on a team and being with different girls and stuff like that and playing, um, playing sports. And I think sports are very important for a girl and a woman and I think women and I think I'm I don't even think I know that once I do decide to have kids like I'm gonna make them play sports I'm gonna <laughs> whether they like it or not they're gonna they're, I want them to play sports I want them to even if they even if it's just for a couple of years I want them to experience being that part of a team to feel 
to have that opportunity to feel, you know, you have this community of people where you share this one talent and not only that, but you're, you're in this for a goal. Not only are you here to win, but you're here to play, play good sports, play good volleyball. And, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd had so many coaches that were so beneficial and like stuff like that. And it took so long. It It's just, I reflect back on it and I'm just, it's crazy that it took so long for me to really understand what it meant to be represented in a sport like this. I mean, volleyball is a popular sport. It's played nationwide, you know, like it's played around the world. Like it, it really, sports connect people. And it's baffling that it took so long to just find another black Latina. It took so long to find another black person. It took so long to get all of this. But I tell this story <laughs> to say that, um, you know, it's never it's never going to end. I mean, we're going to keep growing and we're going to keep being given these opportunities as black and brown people to go out and be a part of these sports that seem so white dominated and that seem like, you know, we have a chance to be a part of the growth of this sport. And I mean, it's easy to say that with like basketball and football um, and even baseball, arguably with, um, I mean, you know, baseball, they recruit a bunch of (laughs) players from the Dominican and from Puerto Rico and from Cuba all the time. And they're mostly black, you know? So, I mean, it's not to say that it doesn't exist now, but we as women already don't have much uh, presence in professional sports. And yeah, we've got the WNBA, but I mean, we don't have as much recognition in professional sports. So um, we don't have women in general don't have recognition in professional sports. And I think that um, as time goes on, that's going to change. I have a strong I have a feel. I mean, I'm a very optimistic person, but I have a strong feeling that um, we're going to grow and it's going to get better. And I hope you enjoyed hearing this slightly embarrassing story. Um, about uh, my experience as a black black Latina playing volleyball. Our next submission comes from somebody that was actually one of my first friends at John Carroll. She is going to share with us a couple stories about how she has faced racism at John Carroll University and how she worked through those experiences and how she perceives them. Everyone, please welcome Nichelle White. Good morning. So my name is Nichelle and I am a 25-year-old biracial woman from Cleveland Heights, Ohio. And I think, yeah, that's where I'm gonna start my story today. Um, So I was born and raised in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, which was an extremely diverse, extremely um, inclusive, just a really good place to be raised, honestly. Um, For as long as I can imagine, from K through 12, I was always surrounded by people from all different ethnic backgrounds, from all you know different places in in my high school i was introduced to a lot of foreign people because there were a lot of foreign exchange students um there was just always a large number of black white latino asian people and i was never really directly exposed to racism growing up that was nothing also being a biracial woman um being both black and white, and both of my parents also are black and white. Um, My family was also just a very diverse place to be as well. Uh, Growing up with a family full of both black and white people, I always felt like I got the best of both worlds. And yeah, so I wasn't really, I guess I was very naive to the racism that 
existed within my own city because when I decided back in 2013, after I graduated high school, when I decided that I was going to go to John Carroll, I, I had no idea, nor did I ever expect that I, in any amount of time there, would be faced with any sort of racism. So the fact that I'm here today with a couple of stories for you um, is a little disheartening, not a little disheartening, it's very disheartening. And I remember telling a really close friend of mine from high school, his family had us over for dinner and his dad is a professor at John Carroll. And I just wanna start off by saying, John Carroll has some of the most amazing professors um, that I have ever met. Most of them are very open and liberal-minded, and the professors were never an issue as far as discrimination and race issues. I, I never had problems with my professors at John Carroll. It is the student body who is should be ashamed, embarrassed, and just, I don't know, just they need to be better, and they need to be held accountable. Um... So yeah, my, I wasn't ready for the, the discrimination that would come. I was a bright-eyed, happy, excited freshman like anyone else. I, my very first day on campus was for orientation, and I remember they split us off into these groups, and I was talking to this one white guy. He seemed nice, and I remember that they're noticing. I, I always notice when there's not a lot of people of color. Any person of color notices when you are the only one. And I remember smiling at these two black girls that were together. And I remember them not like giving me face. <laughs> they were just like not friendly, which is fine, whatever, they didn't know me. And I just remember kind of like thinking out loud and saying it out loud. And I was like, wow, like those black girls are very antisocial. And for me, that's a normal statement. For most of the people I grew up with being around, that's a normal statement, nothing to be thought of twice or anything like that. And I just remember this white guy looking at me and saying, aren't you one of those? And it was just something about the way that he said one of those has stuck with me, like what, five, six years later now? More, like, I, and I'm still... I think about it, you know what I mean? It's still something that I'm like, wow, he really said that to me. <laughs> um, I guess that should have been my like orientation to the discrimination that I was going to face on that campus, but I just never really felt fully, I don't know, I'm, I'm somebody who, I'm very open, bubbly, friendly, and I get along with a lot of people and I never felt at home or at place at John Carroll. I never felt fully like that was where I was supposed to be or someplace where I was accepted and wanted and viewed as a part of the community. And I always, at first, my first two years, I, I like wondered why, what was it? Was it me? Why was I not clicking with these people? Like I wanted to initially. And then later I didn't want to obviously, but like my first year, like, yeah, I'm a freshman. I wanted to click with these people and it wasn't happening. Um, and I honestly do think that part of that has to do with the way that I was raised in public schools and 
because I do identify myself as a black woman and not a white woman. And being light skinned, being a mixed race person, it's very easy to blend in and very easy to like get by, but that's just not who I am, nor is it ever who I wanted to be. Freshman year, I did try to blend a bit. I was on the soccer team. Um, and by blend, I never stood by for any like anything racist or anything like that. I just tried to like water down my blackness a bit, if that makes sense. Um, which I'm super embarrassed to even admit because never, ever, ever in my life should I ever have to water down myself in any sense, especially not my blackness for anyone. I think it was my sophomore year. Yeah, it was my sophomore year. I was a little more uh, reserved my sophomore year. I lived on a sorority floor. I lived in a building that was specifically designated for sororities. And I was the only, no, I wasn't the only black girl on the floor because there was one other black girl from a different sorority on the floor. Um, But I was the only black girl not in a sorority. So like super like black sheep, LOL, black sheep. (laughs) But I stood out a bit on the floor and I didn't really get along with the girls, kept to myself uh, after my rough freshman year, not really feeling like I was fitting in. I decided I'm just going to keep to myself and do my own thing. I went to a party one night with the other black girl that lived on the same dorm floor as me. She and I had gotten close and we decided to go to a party there are not that many black people at John Carroll. And I'm somebody who I'm more comfortable in social settings or anywhere I am. I just fit in better with black people. So we go to this party and surprise, surprise, we are two thirds of the black people at the party. Um, Maybe there's like one other person, but there was this guy who I was friends with. He's a mixed race guy as well. And at one part of the party, I decided I was done being kind of awkward, floating around. And I don't know, I just wanted to find someone to talk to. I went up to him, started talking to him. And this girl, I guess this girl that he was talking to, I guess they were involved at the time. They definitely weren't dating, just like a texting flirt type of thing. Um... She was getting increasingly angry, I guess. I don't know. I was focused on my conversation, but she was getting increasingly angry because I was talking to him and taking up his time. She thought I was like trying to move in on her man, I guess. I don't know. I I cannot tell you what was going on through that girl's mind. Um, She was a girl that lived on the exact same sorority dorm floor as me. So she knew who I was. I'd seen her before. We were not friends nor acquaintances, just knew of each other. And she was just getting very, very angry that I was talking to him. And I could not understand why. And she started doing little things like giving me dirty looks, walking past me, just making me feel really uncomfortable. And finally, um, finally, like I decided to leave. Me and my friend decided that we're going to go. And she starts just acting extremely belligerent, extremely belligerent. And I'm like, dude, like, I, 
literally, I think I said something like, I don't even want him. I'm not interested in him. So like, you can calm down. And I have an attitude, like if I feel attacked or if I feel like I need to be defensive, I get defensive. So I'm positive I had an attitude with this girl, but that doesn't warrant her then screaming at the top of her lungs, fuck Nichelle, that black hard ER bitch. Yeah, those words came out of her mouth. And I had had a couple of drinks as well, and I just got every single, I don't know, every single angry, upset emotion. Like, how dare she? It's embarrassing, first of all. It's embarrassing as hell for somebody to address you that way in front of all of your classmates and peers. Um, I just wanted to punch her in the face, to be honest. And that's what I intended on doing. Um, I have good friends that talked me out of it because violence is not the answer. But yeah, that that's something that was like, it stayed with me. And then she had the audacity, the audacity to come and knock on my door the next day with these big, sad eyes. And she was like, just wanted to say, I'm really sorry. Um, my, my sorority sisters told me how I behaved and like what I said. And I would have never, ever said that if I, if I was sober, I was so blacked out. I didn't even remember saying it. And like, I was just sitting there staring at her, wondering what this girl wanted me to say. Did she want us to like, makeup, hug, and me to be like, yeah, no, don't worry about it, girl. No, 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 I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. Get out of my room. Get out of my room. So she just stood there making excuses for herself for a few moments. And when I wasn't literally saying anything, she was like, all right, that's it. And I was like, all right, can you close my door, please? And that was it. And that was it. But... I don't know why, I don't know what exactly perspired, but nothing ever happened. She didn't get in trouble. I'm pretty sure I told like a lot of her sorority sisters, they found no problem with it. They didn't do anything, say anything. She remained in her sorority. And, you know, the apology I'm 100% convinced was only so that she could remain in her sorority, so that she was able to, you know, say that she did something to redeem herself. No, I was not giving her that. And, you know, now to this day, I wish that I would have like gone harder, but I was a college student living my own life with my own stresses and did not have time to go hard for Miss Kappa Kappa whatever, who decided to call me the N-word when she was blacked out drunk. Didn't have the time for it. Jesse Paradise is somebody that I've known for a while. I mean, we went through school together. We talk about art together. We even talk about a lot of issues that go on in society. Jesse does that precisely with his artwork. This is a submission called Trauma in Slow Motion. There's a wolf in a white carcass wearing wool from a sheep in which he pond like a con artist. Blood trickles from the jaw with teeth cutting through both eye sockets. Too many heads in a guillotine. When the stakes rises to ISIS, the pressure to meet the measure send my closest enemies to crisis. Plastic ties around my wrist. As the wolves circle to the moon, 
Tides shift and change paths. This bloodbath turn to a typhoon. Room full of torture in order to border the secrets from letting out like a hoarder. What motives, cold as polar, bear these thoughts in mind, or keep your spirits lifted to the solar? You can't outlive, and you can't be conceived. Was it Adam and Eve? <laughs> or Isaac Newton who killed Johnny Appleseed? I lived this life. All this trauma. Everything that you see on the news. When the noise stops, will you hear it? Will you see life through our view? I can't believe that. Our trauma is currency, traded between two white warring factions. Each side wants more views, likes, and shares, just more reactions. Don't you see the trauma we're living? Your sins will never be forgiven. I can't listen to it anymore. I can't hear those words. I have no more energy for it. So when you decide that our lives matter, just realize that you had to decide if our lives mattered. The definition of blackness to you is opposite. Something polarized, something so exotic, something distinguished as different. You've decided this for us. You've decided through action and non-action, through reaction and through genocide. No more sound bites. No more. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. I want to close out with a song that was made by a friend of mine who is a very artistically-minded person. He created this song to kind of talk about the times that are going on right now. Everyone, this is E. Sosa with a song titled The Art of War. Warping time can't bend reality Seeing moves, I ain't a newbie Killing people can't lose a body All the homies is dead Cause all the fed And the violence just spreads Blood dripping and it's straight red Damn And load away to release Was bring into a piece He keeps going and he can't cease Till the ops yells and says freeze No one stops it So they won't quit Gotta show grit Bleeding out and he know it We'll get a first aid kit, and it really ain't a skit. Get angry in a fit, so he forfeits his own life. No point in living, not what he wants for his children. All his anger on life is flowing, and it's just going and growing. Get mad, and he know 
with Get mad, don't do shit Get sad, just make you quit Makes question if you even fit All around is dead bodies and dreams No power changing it seems Everything looks too dark and bleak Can't find the answers he seeks So what story can you paint? Seems too dark for the hearts of the faint Crying for justice like a saint Or going in like Shaq in the pain The narrative is dominant People loaded with they armament Makes the hood too damn militant Too many people not cognizant This structure laid in different segments Their bodies are the remnants Or remembrance of all this gloomy Makes you only want to fight for me But I think we ain't free See, that's thing like a bee And leaves you straight lonely Friends left to drown in the deep And too much blood to swimming through Drown the good times at a few So his ambition only grew Before time passed He really knew what he had to do That's how his hope renewed And he finally gained the truth The art of war is real beauty Even when you feel in moody No need to pick up that Uzi Or leave the hood straight bloody No need to fight, we not enemies No need to die, that's destiny No need to cry, that's no need to lie, that's heresy Just gonna be told as valuable like gold It makes life unfold To a new story to be told All stuff is real gory But I had to show the real story Of the people we had to bury Said facing death, that's scary Just telling my own fable Of how I want to enable All us to be stable And lead us away from the fatal Too many things that are deadly Too many in front of me, too many paths to consider, too many lives to reconsider, and this gets me upset, just wishing I could reset, all old lives that have set, and destroy all our regret. Everyone, I want to thank you so much for listening to Black Testimony. This episode was all about uplifting black voices and black experience, but also to showcase the importance of listening and to learn from one another. To Jesse, Tyra, Chance, Tati, Giselle, RD, Chris, Manny, Ash, Joel, Nichelle, Zachary, and E. Sosa, thank you so much for being willing to contribute to this very important episode. I really, 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 really appreciate your vulnerability with whatever you wanted to submit. To the listeners, please don't forget, I tell you this all the time, don't forget to look at the episode descriptions to see how you can follow everyone that was featured on this episode. And please, please, please support their initiatives. 
To those that are tuning into the show for the first time, you can listen to Race to the Finish wherever you listen to your podcast. Don't forget to follow us at Race, the number two, the finish. And that's the same handle on literally every social media site. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Black Testimony. We'll see you on the next episode. Be safe, everyone, and good night.